came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Tuesday the 30th of January 2018. This is our 50th episode and our first for this year. Enjoy. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And on my recent trip to Europe, I visited some fantastic observatories and did a couple of interviews with our friends from Northolt Branch Observatory our asteroid hunters. In Marburg, I spoke with Daniel Bamberg, a mathematician, and in West London, I spoke with Guy Wells, telescope wrangler. And that's followed by Dr Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. Ian will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky. So first up, Daniel Bamberger. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Brandon. Nice to meet you. Thank you for showing us around your beautiful city of Marburg, Daniel. It's been a real holiday and we've really enjoyed your beautiful city here. Yeah, and try to be your guide. Very good. Now, Daniel, we spoke to you last year and we spoke to Guy as well as part of the episode we did on the Northolt Branch Observatory. Could you tell us what your astronomical highlights were for 2017? Well, yeah, sure. There were some highlights. I visited Northolt last June, and I was meeting Guy and Jeff and many other friends. And we were doing a live broadcast for Asteroid Day. We were highlighting the importance of planetary defense. The most memorable object we saw was Asteroid 2012 TC4. That's a small asteroid the size of a truck that came very close, about 50,000 kilometers. Wow. And we knew in advance that it would uh, pass by safely. There was a worldwide campaign organized by NASA and many others, a kind of dry run to test our planetary defense system. Yeah, it was nice to participate, and we learned a lot from that. And I'm sure NASA learned a lot, too. And, of course, meeting you, Brandon. That was a highlight, too. Thank you very much, Daniel. Now, can you describe for us what you do on Northolt observation nights when Guy is producing images in West London? What do you do? As you know, I am in Germany, guys in London. So we communicate over the internet. My nights begin with a triage in the evening. and We use various online tools to find suitable targets which are provided by the Minor Planet Center. I then check whether there are any NEOs who need uh, confirmation. 
and I prepare a shadow, which includes the detailed sky needs for the imaging, like exposure times and so on. Uh, when guys at the observatory, we are in contact via Facebook. And while he is imaging, I keep an eye on the new confirmation page yep. where um, new discoveries are posted. And uh, if necessary, I adjust our shadow or help guide to troubleshoot some problems. And once he is finished to image an object, he processes the data, uploads it to the internet and sends it to me. Then I use software to find our target in the images and to measure its position and submit our measurements to the Minor Planet Center. When I'm done, I create an image for our Facebook and Twitter pages. We are happy to show off what's going on in the sky, and education and public outreach is one of our primary goals. So that's an important part. Thank you very much, Daniel. Now, I've seen some of the data you work with, and to me, there's very long strings of numerical data. You've been working on asteroid orbits. Now, in layman's terms, what is orbit determination? Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, any asteroid has its own orbit around the sun. And uh, orbit determination is the process of finding out that orbit. When a new object is found, nothing is known about it except its initial position in the sky. But its distance is completely unknown. Could be anything. Could be very close or very far away. And only when the object has moved, it is possible to determine where it is in space. Now, luckily, the computations involved in, in this process are quite complicated. But uh, nowadays, computers can perform all, all those tedious computations. So you don't need to know a lot of math to calculate an orbit. The software we use, which is called FindOrb, uh, does most of that automatically. Of course, the output is still a string of numbers, but most amateur observers don't really need to, to understand what's behind those numbers. The orbit computations are mostly done by the Minor Planet Center, and observers can rely on that. Now, for newly found objects, this FindOrb software is very handy because Guy needs to have a way to add those new objects to the Stellarium software, which controls our telescope. Yep. And our friend David Rankin, who runs his own observatory in Utah, in the United States, uh, he has helped us to write an interface between FindOrb and Stellarium. Yep. So we can use FindOrb to calculate an orbit, or the computer calculates an orbit. We don't have to do much. And David's script adds the orbit to Stellarium, which then controls our telescope. So it's really not uh, not this much the user has to understand about those those numbers. That sounds fantastic, Daniel. Now, you mentioned earlier a planetary defense system. Can you tell us what is our planetary defense system? The Planetary Defense Coordination Office is a NASA program. It's part of NASA's Planetary Science Division, and it deals with the potential threat from asteroid impacts. It consists of three units. First, the NEO Observations Program, that includes the Minor Planet Center and the big surveys, which are funded by NASA. 
like Catalina and Panstars. Uh, then there's a section that deals with emergency responses in case anything dangerous is found. Yep. And then there's a section that studies how potential impacts could be mitigated, like how to prevent impacts, how to do short warning systems, and so on. Uh, usually what, what matters to us is the new observation program. Uh, but the aforementioned practice campaign around 2012 TC4 that fell into the, the scope of the emergency response section. Fantastic, Daniel. Now, back to your work at the North Alt Observatory. What's your role in the confirmation process? NASA's NEO Observations Program re, um, relies on big automated surveys to find as many asteroids as possible and to cover as much sky as possible in as little time as you can. So... Since so little is known about any newly found object, and since um, those NASA surveys aren't very flexible where they can point their telescopes, all newly found objects would get lost. So yep. what's needed? Targeted observations from other sites. And this is where the system heavily relies on amateurs. Yep. We have small to medium-sized telescopes, but who can do targeted observations. And Northwood Branch Observatories part of that network. Since we observe from Europe, we can see uh, most new objects about 12 to 18 hours after discovery, which in the United States. And we can also see objects uh, several hours before they become observable again from the United States. So that's a kind of favorable position. Fantastic, Daniel. Now, while you were talking about planetary defence, I was reminded of a media story that was being splashed around the internet that you probably saw it as well about NASA being very concerned about a potentially dangerous asteroid, which was as big as Dubai's Burj Khalifa building, that will fly above the Earth at a speed of 67,000 miles per hour in about two weeks' time. Is this another media beat-up, Daniel? <laughs> Those descriptions are colourful, aren't they? It's, uh, <laughs> as big as Burj Khalifa or as big as a football stadium, They're, they like those comparisons. Well, every now and then the media pick up news about close passes and uh, usually those are hyped to a kind of end-of-the-world story. This time uh, it's about... 22 HA129. Yep. Uh, that's an asteroid that comes within 10 times the distance to the moon. Um, and yes, <laughs> that's completely safe. <laughs> it's kind of silly that uh, when, whenever there's an asteroid in the news, the first thing everybody's urged to say is, no, it's not going to hit us. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a risk from asteroids. Not this one, but in general. And we need to find those asteroids to deal with that threat. But uh, not every close pass is a prophecy of the apocalypse. Yep. Asteroids have much more to offer. Potential resources, for example, or clues about the origin of our solar system. Yes. And uh, sometimes media gets excited about the right thing for the wrong reasons. <laughs> now, uh, this asteroid has been found 14 years ago, and its orbit is well known. This upcoming close approach is nothing to be concerned about, and NASA isn't concerned. The media is. 
it's a good opportunity to collect scientific data about a really interesting object. And that's really what matters. Fantastic, Daniel. Thank you very much. Now, finally, what are you looking forward to personally with your work with Northolt Branch Observatory for 2018? Mm, thanks, Brendan. There are some nice bright asteroids we are already making plans for. The aforementioned HA129 is one of them. This upcoming close approach is a good opportunity to collect more data about a really interesting object. It's not going to hit us anytime soon, but it's an interesting object to study, like many other near-Earth asteroids. There's also Comet 46P Virtanen, which uh, will be visible to the naked eye from both hemispheres. You may want to have a look at it in December. Yep. Uh, we are part of a campaign for professional amateur collaboration to study that comet, which we currently help to prepare. We hope to cover the arrival of the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft at asteroid Bennu. Yep. We saw the spacecraft itself when it made its Earth flyby in October. Um, it came close enough to be seen with, with a telescope. And it will be nice to see what it finds when it's arriving at its destination. That's an exciting mission and really exciting times to be involved in asteroids. That will be fantastic and something to look forward to, Daniel. Now, finally, it seems that there's some observatories doing very nice NEO work in the Northern Hemisphere. Should we also have similar observatories in the Southern Hemisphere looking at the other half of our solar system? Uh, short answer, yes. Now, um, the Southern Hemisphere has two disadvantages. Uh, first, it doesn't have the United States. Uh, and second, it doesn't have much land. Now, there are some really good sites um, in the Southern Hemisphere, mostly in South America. And right now, they are building a very large telescope, the Large Synoptic uh, Survey Telescope, which will be even larger than the surveys that are currently active, like Catalina. Um, it will be an 8-meter telescope that is just looking for near-Earth asteroids. And that will be in the southern hemisphere. won't go online before the early 2020s. So, yeah, until then, southern hemisphere is kind of a blind spot, which is unfortunate. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much, Daniel. It's been wonderful talking with you again, and it was fantastic to meet you and get such a great tour of your lovely city. If our listeners are ever thinking of going to Germany, do go to Marburg. It's one of the gems of Europe. Yeah, look around. I'm very happy that I was able to show you my city. And uh, you're always welcome again. There's a lot left to show you. Thanks, Daniel. I'm going to see Guy in a couple of weeks over in London, so I'll say hi to him for you. Thank you. That was Daniel Baumberger, mathematician, genealogist and tour guide extraordinaire. Well, here we are at the North Holt Branch Observatory and we're speaking with Guy Wells. We spoke with Guy in an earlier episode and I've travelled from Australia to London and we're in West London at the moment in Guy's Observatory. Great to talk with you again, Guy. 
Hi. Now, Guy, can you tell us a bit about the setup you've got here? You've got a big solid tripod here. Can you tell us about a normal night's observing for you? Yeah. Basically, we make a schedule of targets that need to be observed, and then once that's prepared, we I come to the observatory, get everything ready, and then basically just image every target in turn until we run out of power. Fantastic. <laughs> now, can you tell us how you select your targets? They're from Big Sky Surveys? Yeah, that's right. We normally select them based on the uncertainty in their orbits. So if an asteroid has uncertainties, then we want to measure the position so we can eliminate these uncertainties. Basically, that's it. And do you select ones that are directly overhead? You haven't got much leeway here for shooting off at angles. No, the lowest elevation is probably about 30 degrees. So we base, we start things that are going to set early, and then as other objects come up, um, we progressively end up um, finishing in the east. Fantastic. Now, often we can get very windy conditions here. Do you select different telescopes for different viewing uh, situations? Yeah. Mainly we use a 10-inch RC if it's not windy. If it's slightly windy, we might put the 6-inch Schmidt on. And if it's really windy, we'll have to use a really small refractor, 70mm. Very good. Now, once you've got your results, what do you do with those results? I know that you do publish them online, and I've seen some fantastic images that you've put up there. Tell us a bit about how your results are used by others. So, once we take all these images, we have to measure the position of um, the asteroid or comet in them. Once we do that, we send that data to the Minor Planet Center, and it gets added to databases of the orbits of these objects. So then, in the future, other astronomers use our data and the data that's on the Minor Planet Center to be able to locate the objects. Okay. Do you have to very accurately know where you are in terms of GPS coordinates and know exactly what time it is to verify your uh, observations? Yeah. We have to. When you get a new observatory and you get an observatory code, you have to send the, the latitude and longitude of the exact point where your telescope is going to be. So that, um, and you can only use that uh, position. And then your your clock. Um, so your measurements are correct, need to be accurate to less than like a tenth of a second, let's say. So how do you get down to a tenth of a second and what instrument do you use to get such accurate time measurements? Before we start um, every observational run, um, we synchronise our clock with an uh, atomic clock app. So the moment I start, I synchronise the clocks and then we run for one session and we synchronise every time we start a new session, a new night. Fantastic, Kai. Now, you've had a great year the last 12 months since we interviewed you last time. Can you tell us about some of the highlights from your point of view of what you and North Holt Branch Observatory have achieved in the last 12 months? We've submitted more measurements than any other UK observatory, although there are other observatories who um, image uh, faint objects in us, so it's not like our work is the very most important, but um, we work as hard as we can. We image um, faint objects that, uh, within our system's capability. We work with Asteroid Day, we've been in documentaries, we've done radio um, broadcasts, so it's been somewhat productive year, I'd say. And you were nominated for a prestigious position recently, I believe. 
I was elected a fellow um, at the end of last year, and I also was um, a runner-up in the astrophotography um, com- uh, competition in Greenwich. Um, or I was like in the pool of people selected, but, um, so I wasn't really a runner-up. No, it was a great honour to be there. Fantastic. And if our listeners wanted to go and see some of your images, where would they search to find those images? Um, the best base is um, on one of our social media channels, mainly Facebook at North Old Branch Observatory, or we're on Twitter as well. So if you're interested in asteroids and comets, maybe give it a look. We'll put those links into our show notes. Excellent. Okay, Guy, can you tell us about your most sensitive instrument that you use to find really faint and really perhaps distant objects? Yeah, so we have... Um, 250mm RC 10 inch. That's our main scope that does the most work. Um, and when coupled with a um, very sensitive CCD camera, we're able to go down to about Mag 20 from here, despite the terrible light pollution that we suffer. It takes a long time to get that faint um, compared with what you could do in um, a dark place, but we've got the time, so we don't mind spending it chasing these faint objects. So you take a large number of images and then stack them? Yeah, how do you go about getting such faint data? Okay, so if it's a distant object, like say something past Pluto, the apparent motion is not a lot, so you could afford to do say five minute um, exposures um, or ten minute exposures, whatever. Um, but if it's close near-Earth asteroid, they're moving pretty fast, so even if it's Mag 19, you might have to only use like five second um, exposures and track that for as long as possible. Due to the moving fast, they cross our field of view sometimes in less than 10 minutes. So these ones are very difficult to catch. But there are a variety of objects out there. And we normally go down to about 19 or in special case of 20. Fantastic. So if it is a near-Earth object moving quickly, do you have to reposition your scope to get a second image of it? Yeah, there are occasions where we'll have to take three separate fields of view to see if, um, see if we caught it nicely. Um, it's not often we have to do that, but we do have to do that sometimes. <laughs> Very good. We've just talked about your past year. What's the next year looking like for you for North Alt Branch Observatory? We're going to continue doing what we, we do. We want to keep confirming new asteroids. Um, they're on the Neo Confirmation page, that newly found object. I'm trying to get more than we did last year. We want to carry on looking at first opposition um, objects as well, and any new comets that show uncertainties in orbits and the same asteroids. And we'll also keep documenting any um, supernovas from the other time. Yeah, there's been some nice ones discovered recently. That Christmas Day one was awesome. Yep, there's been some nice ones. Tell us, how seriously should we take the threat of asteroids impacting on Earth and affecting humanity? The threat is real. Um, it doesn't happen often that you get um, a major incident. But something like Chelyabinsk um, really highlights that big objects do come to the atmosphere and this one caused um, mass damage and injuries. So the threat's there. So we keep trying to track asteroids um, so we can understand where they're going to be in the future. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Guy Wells. It's okay. been wonderful speaking with you. Here in your observatory, finally. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming. So that's pretty amazing what these guys are achieving in West London with the light pollution, noise pollution, 
cars, aeroplanes, wind, hurricanes and seagulls. And right now we're back in Australia, so we're crossing over to Adelaide to speak with our regular presenter, Dr Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. I hope you had a great Christmas and New Year with your friends and family. I've just come from 6 degrees in Europe to 36 degrees in Australia. I'm probably still a bit jet lag. Let's get stuck straight into it, Ian. There's some exciting things happening this year. And in particular, something to do with the moon. What's so special about this particular lunar eclipse, Ian? I hope you had a great Christmas and New Year with your friends and family. I've just come from I've just come from six degrees in Europe to thirty-six degrees in Australia. I'm probably still a bit jet lag. Let's get stuck straight into it, Ian. There's some exciting things happening this year. And in particular, something to do with the moon. It's a, it's a triple whammy in a, in a, in a sense. Uh, this is the first lunar eclipse we've had in Australia since uh, April 2015. So it's a bit of a, a dry patch for uh, total lunar eclipses, which are, are quite dramatic. It's going to be a nice long eclipse. So you'll get it'll be very deep. It'll be very dark. It's also, although it's a, going to occur, the totality is going to occur a little bit late. It'll be uh, reasonably placed in the evening to, for people to watch. But it also occurs on the night of a blue moon, as well as being occurring very close to the moon's perigee. Now, a blue moon is in our common parlance is the uh, second full moon in a month. Normally, if people remember, the word month comes from moon and theoretically a month should contain one full moon. But because the, the moon uh, period is from full moon to full moon is actually 27.3 days rather than a full 30 days, the moon, a time of the full moon, uh, drifts. And so for those months that have 30 or 31 days, if you have the first full moon occurring on the 1st or the 2nd, you're going to get a uh, another full moon occurring on the 30th, 31st. And so we've been calling these blue moons. They're relatively rare. You get, expect to see a blue moon uh, once every 2.7 years. So having a total lunar eclipse on the night of a full moon is rarer still. Now, for those of our listeners who've been uh, reading Facebook, uh, where the uh, North American sites have been saying this is the first blue lunar eclipse we've had for 152 years, that's just the North Americans. For Australia, <laughs> yeah, for Australia, it's still been a long time because of you know, international date lines and calendars. For us, it was uh, in 30th December 1982 was our last full moon total lunar eclipse. Still a long time uh, and still making it very interesting. Of course, the moon won't actually be blue. We're just going to get blue because of its, of its rarity. Indeed, what will happen is the moon will go a very deep, dark, coppery colour. For those of you who are watching, the eclipse will visibly start at around 10.18pm in the evening. Daylight saving time for uh, the Northern Territory uh, listeners, that will be, of course, be an, an hour earlier. It's a little bit tricky because 
unlike the, the Earth's shadow as it crosses the moon, Earth's shadow uh, is affected by the fact we have an atmosphere. And so we have an actually rather a, a defined, sharp shadow. We have a fuzzy shadow with an inner shadow and an outer shadow. So the time I've given you for the eclipse start is when the inner shadow, the darkest part of the shadow, hits the moon. You can actually, if you've got fairly good eyesight, you can see the moon darkening a little bit before that. Then uh, at 11.21, totality will occur when the moon is totally covered by Earth's shadow. About Mm. an hour to Mm. cover the moon, so you've got plenty of time to watch. And what will be really interesting is as the uh, eclipse progresses, you'll see the very bright moon and a very dark bite out of it. And then as the uh, eclipse progresses, you'll begin to see stars popping out uh, as the moon gets dimmer and dimmer. And then the really dark section of the moon as the moon remaining bright bit of the moon gets thinner and thinner the dark section becomes redder and redder now uh, some people uh, like to call this a blood moon and that irritates me immensely (laughs) it's just something it's a blood moon it gets people excited Uh, it's it's exciting because it's beautiful um, fantastic and rare but not because there's any sort of association with the color but it's red because our atmosphere refracts light and so the, the yellows and blues get uh, refracted out of the way, but the reds tend to stay. And so we get, uh, the Earth's shadow is actually has a bit of red light in it. Uh, and so the moon goes a reddish colour because it's going to be deep in the uh, Earth's shadow. It's going to be a very dark red colour. Now, the other thing I mentioned was it's a perigee moon, mm. which means it's very large if you've got a telescope. January 2 was another perigee moon. Now, people have been calling this a super moon, but it's a consequence of the fact that the moon's orbit around the Earth is an ellipse. And sometimes the moon, uh, when uh, is closest to Earth, that's perigee. Sometimes it's farther away. And when the moon is at perigee, that's when it's closest to Earth, uh, at, and you've got a full moon, then it's bigger and brighter. No one gets really excited about perigee half moons or last quarters or first quarters. They get really excited by the perigee full moon. But it, it's 15% uh, bigger, 30% uh, brighter, and if you've got normal human vision, unless you've got a really good memory, you're not going to remember this. You're not going to be able to tell the difference between a perigee moon and uh, and another moon. Actually, what's really interesting is that the next total lunar eclipse we've got this year, 28th July, and that's a mini moon. That's an apogee moon. So if you've got a telescope or uh, binoculars or something like that or a a camera with a good telephoto lens and you take a magnified image of, of of the eclipsed moon, this eclipse and compare it with a magnified image of the uh, eclipsed moon on the 28th, you'll see they're quite different. But it's very hard to see with the eye. So I I have some astronomer friends who can do this, especially if you're always watching the sky and you've got good comparison objects so you know what what the moon looks like. And you've got a good memory, so you can remember between January and uh, July, then you'll be able to tell the difference. But uh, most uh, people with ordinary visual acuity, it's going to be very hard to tell a, a difference. So even though it it sounds really good, we've got a blue moon and we've got a perigee moon all coming together cool. for a total lunar eclipse. For ordinary people looking with their eyes, you'll see something incredibly beautiful, but it won't look really, really different. Uh, for people in Perth, the uh, eclipse start begins shortly after 
uh, twilight ends. In fact, mm. they're going to have a quite dramatic one in a sense that the moon is just rising and they'll begin to see the moon beginning to eclipse as the sunlight fades. For the people in the East Coast, uh, it starts later in the evening, so they really have to wait until about midnight to see totality occur, whereas we see totality about 1130 um, and uh, maximum totality is about midnight. Uh, now, it is a, um, a school night, so it's well worth letting the kids stay up a bit longer. I should also point out that uh, when the moon is totally eclipsed, it still glows a little bit, and hence the coppery moon, but lots of the stars will come back. Now, if you're in a reasonably dark sky uh, site, uh, look to the left of the moon and you should see the beehive cluster there. The beehive cluster is a nice little open cluster in the constellation of Cancer and the moon's right next to the constellation of Cancer and the cluster, but the full moon will completely wipe it out. But it may be interesting to watch as the moon gets darker to see when these stars pop out and you'll see this beautiful little cluster which you can see with your unaided eye and looks really good in binoculars. In fact, if people want to take some images of the totally eclipsed moon and the beehive cluster together, that would be a really cool project to try. So that's the moon and the lunar eclipse, And Can you tell us now what else is happening this year in our night and morning skies? Solar eclipses. We've got a partial solar eclipse happening. Yes, uh, we've got a, uh, a partial solar eclipse on the 15th of February, uh, but it's uh, only going to be seen from parts of uh, Uruguay, Paraguay and Brazil, sadly for you northern hemisphere folks. Um, for those of us in the southern hemisphere, we'll get to see a partial eclipse on the 12th, on the 13th of July. Um, But it's going to be, again, it's going to be a very sad partial eclipse, uh, only visible from the south of South Australia and Victoria. So those people in Port Lincoln and Mount Gambia uh, at Lordsesson and Hobart will be able to see the moon partially eclipse the sun. But you're only going to see a tiny nick out of the the sun, so it's not going to be really exciting. So not a very good year for solar eclipses this year. On the other hand, uh, this is going to be the best year to see the opposition of Mars. Now, Mars and Earth align once every two years where the Earth is directly between the sun and Mars. Uh, because um, Mars and Earth have elliptical orbits, sometimes the uh, perihelion of Mars and the uh, aphelion of Earth coincides, and this time Mars is much closer to Earth and much bigger through telescopes than at times when you get the aphelion of Mars and the uh, perihelion of Earth. Yep. And this year, uh, 2015, uh, 2018, the opposition of Mars is going to be the best since the uh, best ever opposition of Mars in 2003. So, of course, be prepared for a large amount of spam uh, messages saying um, that this August uh, Mars will be as big as the full moon. It won't be. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost an annual event, Ian, isn't it? It is an annual event, though. There must be a robot just pumping it out. (laughs) Mars is at opposition in uh, 27th of of July. Sadly, it's not near anything particularly interesting at this time, but it's, uh, it will make Mars very obvious. It will be extremely bright. Um, and at its maximum, it's going to be 24 um, minutes of arc across, which is uh, fairly big uh, astronomical terms. 
Um, if you have even a small telescope, you'll be able to see uh, markings on uh, Mars' surface. You'll be able to see the polar caps and uh, quite possibly dust storms sweeping over the Martian surface. That's so, fantastic, Ian, and that also means that people without any equipment will be able to go out at night and see this great, fantastic red dot in the sky. Because Mars is an area that's devoid of very bright stars, it'll really stand out, so it'll be very, very nice. Something to look forward to. Something to look forward to. Another thing to look forward to is the lineup of all the bright planets, all the the five bright classical planets will line up in the early evening sky in mid-October. So you'll be able to, to see the bright planets all together. And during this time, you'll also be able to see the moon pass along the bright planets, making for a very beautiful observation. Something else that would be of uh, interest, of course, is our standard meteor showers. This year is a pretty bad year for meteor showers because many of our more interesting ones are strongly interfered with by the moon. For example, the Eta Aquarians, which are a very good southern hemisphere meteor shower, are strongly interfered with by the last quarter moon. So it'll be very hard to see a decent Eta Aquarian meteor shower this year. However, the standout um, meteor shower is the Geminids worldwide. Now, the Geminids seem to have been getting stronger over the past few years. Okay. Uh, and it, this may be due to our encounters with increasingly dense dust trails from Comet Phaeton. Yep. So uh, it, it's, we've been getting some really nice Geminids. And this year, the Geminid meteor shower is not particularly badly interfered with by the moon. The, the, you've got a, la, a first quarter moon which would set before the majority of the Geminid meteor peak occurs. So it's looking like it'll be a decent Geminid meteor shower for us. What is the date for the Geminids, Ian? Um, it, the peak is on the 15th of December, but you should be able to see good rates on the 14th and the 16th of December as well. Excellent. The other thing that may be happening around about the end of the year is Comet 46P may be uh, potentially visible to the unaided eye. It's a peak somewhere between magnitude 3 and 4, so it'll be just a fuzzy dot in the sky to the unaided eye. But if you're in reasonably dark suburban or country spaces, you should be able to see it pretty easily. We're keeping a close eye on a number of other comets, but so far... There's looking like there's uh, there's a couple of potential binocular comets, uh, but there's nothing that's uh, looking uh, as if it's going to be a, a decent unaided eye comet beyond 46p. The variable star mirror should be quite bright in November as well, but uh, it's currently quite bright now. It has a period of something like 233 days, so that. If you go out and you have uh, dark skies at the moment, if you go out and uh, look up where uh, the constellation of Cetus is, you should be able to see um, the variable star mirror quite brightly. Uh, if you watch it over the coming weeks, you'll begin to see it fade. And then if you uh, wait until around about uh, end of October, uh, you should be able to see uh, a mirror begin to brighten again until it's, uh, it's brightest around about 26th November. So there's some very interesting things happening in the, in the sky over the year. You'll be able to see Mars close to the Trippid Nebula in March, and yep. then in early April, Mars close to the Globular Cluster M22. So the, and then uh, later in April, Mars and Saturn will be very close. So you'll have all these 
interactions where uh, bright planets will be close to very uh, either other very bright planets or to other very interesting objects. So it's going to be a very busy year this year. And that'll be fantastic for our friends in the Northern Hemisphere as well. Yeah, a lot of these things will be visible in both the Northern and Southern Hemispheres. So uh, it will be uh, quite fun for everybody. Fantastic, Ian. I should mention two things before we go. I should mention two things while I emphasise the uh, evening lineup of all the bright planets. Yep. I should also mention that for those of you, you who are morning owls, over the next fortnight, uh, you're going to see most of the bright planets, Mars, Jupiter and Saturn, um, and for a very little while Mercury, are lined up in the morning sky. And over the next uh, fortnight, Mercury disappears from view. But the moon starts to come down the planets. In fact, you not only have the three bright planets, but you also have the bright star speaker and the bright star Antares. And you'll be able to see the moon uh, go past speaker, past Jupiter, past Mars, uh, past Antares, and then past Saturn. And in fact, uh, you also see Mars uh, come very close to the uh, double star beta uh, Scorpio. Uh, in the next few days. Ian, uh, tell us about this disco ball that's up in the sky. Okay. The, the disco ball in the st- sky is the humanity star. Theoretically, it's a artwork that somehow symbolises humanity's uh, desire to uh, go out into space. It's uh, basically a large D&D dice covered in, in silver foil. Uh, and... Uh, every so often, the facets will catch the as it tumbles through space. The facets will catch the sun's light and flash. Uh, so there's been a lot of angst about this, about it being light pollution and another piece of space junk. But it turns out it's actually quite dim. And I've seen one of the first videos of uh, of Humanity Star, and you have to be looking very closely and very carefully to see the flashes. But that could be something very interesting in Australia, and uh, you won't be able to see. Uh, humanity star until uh, mid-February and it won't be very interesting until late February. In the Northern Hemisphere I believe they don't get to see uh, humanity star uh, in a decent orientation until sometime in March. Again, if you check uh, Heavens Above or Cal Sky uh, or other uh, um, satellite predicted services, that should give you a better idea where you see it for your uh, location. But that's something else that's up in the sky that's be quite interesting. That's very interesting. I mean, uh, reminds me of that Russian attempt to put a beacon up in the sky last year called Mayak that yeah. failed to deploy. So, and a lot of people were very excited about it going up and another group of people were very excited that it didn't deploy yeah, <laughs> but uh, apparently every so often, it's in, it, even though it didn't deploy properly enough, it deployed but every so often it, uh, it does give a bright flare. Uh, and uh, there's apparently a 0.5 magnitude flare uh, in uh, over New Zealand sometime in the next week or so, or I may have just missed it. Um, uh, very good, Ian. And your advice about people getting up in the morning and seeing the morning sky is excellent because at the moment in Australia there are a lot of heat waves going through and people often struggle to sleep a bit and wake up a bit early in the morning so we you'd be encouraging people to 
if you wake up in the morning and it's too hot, just cool down and go out and look up. Yeah, well, exactly. Also, uh, the advantage is that uh, for most places, by the time you've tossed and turned in your baking little house or baking big house, if you go outside, it's going to be cooler and you'll have this wonderful view in the sky. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's fabulous talking with you again and what a great way to kick off 2018. See you in two weeks. Radio Wave!